Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am the college teaching pastor for us here at Anderson. And uh, man, it's just—it's a joy and a privilege for me to be able to pop over here with y'all. It's—it's uh, it's summer, right? I don't know if you've noticed, but you can go to Blue Baker right now. There were more, there are more people eating than studying, and you're like, what is going on? And it's—it's it's summer. That's what's happened. Uh, and we know that this is a different kind of season, right? It's a transitional kind of time. Uh, and because of the change of season, we always like to use this, uh, this, or we want to use this this summer as an opportunity to basically allow our senior pastor, Brian Fisher, to redirect some of his energy and efforts. And so he's not going to be speaking every single week. He'll still be speaking some this summer, but for a lot of the summer, uh, we'll have different uh, people popping up uh, and, and sharing from God's word, uh, myself included. And uh, even though the, the person is changing, the focus is always going to be the same. We're all going to be looking at uh, historical figures in our scripture, right? These biblical men and women who've gone before us, who've lived lives that, that were not perfect, uh, that, that weren't just like, they weren't people that had everything figured out or could answer every question, but they were people who God used in powerful ways. And so we want to learn from their victories and their defeats. We want to learn from the experiences that they had, their encounters they had with the Lord, and the way that he used their lives, because we want that to change the way that we live here and now. And so this morning, we're going to be specifically looking at the life of a man named Stephen. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, and our hope is as we unpack kind of a little period of his life, a little snapshot of, of who he was and what he did, we, we want to essentially uh, just marvel at the fact, learn from the fact that he was a person who disrupted his world, right? who had this incredible impact this incredible uh, uh, legacy that he created because he was willing to deny himself. He created incredible disruption. God worked through him to just change everything in the world around him because Stephen was willing to deny himself. And, and that is a really incredibly difficult thing for us to do, right? Deni- self-denial, I think, is one of the hardest disciplines for us to develop. It's one of the hardest practices for us to do. And, and I see this played out in my life, but I, I especially see it played out in the lives of my young children. My wife and I, we have three kids under the age of five. We have a four-year-old daughter, a two-year-old son, and a three-month-old son. Uh, And I'll tell you, when we uh, interact with them, as I interact with them on a daily basis, I see the struggle that comes when you're confronted with the opportunity to deny yourself. And I see my children essentially fail over and over and over again. Uh, Last week, uh, my wife and I and our three kids, we went to a wedding uh, and my wife took this picture. I asked how she was doing uh, because during the ceremony, uh, she actually stayed in our car, in our van with our two sons uh, because she knew that, hey, if I bring our two-year-old who loves sticking out his tongue and if I bring our three-month-old who's just staring into space, they will probably disrupt the entire wedding ceremony. They came to the reception, but for the ceremony itself, they just, they stayed in the car. And I think this action, this willingness of hers to sacrifice in this way, it was just another kind of item on the list that I've seen as we've had three kids. I've seen time and time again, how just there's this incredible contrast between a newborn and a mother, right? There's this incredible contrast between my three-year-old son, Liam, and my wife, Susan, uh, just played out in basically every aspect of life where it's Essentially, my son Liam, I love him deeply. I'm so glad that he's, you know, he's a blessing that the Lord has given me. But goodness gracious, he's the most selfish little creature uh, I've ever encountered other than his two siblings. And so uh, 
I've seen in his life, and I've seen in every kid's life, and you've probably seen in your life or in your children's lives, man, there's just something about a baby that they're, high, they're entirely dependent on the, on the work of other people, right? And that's okay, uh, but goodness gracious, it means that every thought they have, every action they take, every word or you know, sound out of their mouth uh, is selfish in his thoughts, in his actions, and in his speech. Everything he does is self-motivated. He's thinking about, like, what do I need? Well, do I need my passy? I want my passy. Well, why don't I have my passy? Ah! And he just screams until someone gives him his passy, right? And he will just live life in this season, right, just entirely focused on himself. And it's such an interesting contrast then with his mother, with my wife, who essentially puts all of her thought, all of her action, all of her speech into serving other people. She's constantly thinking about our family, about who needs what. And, you know, she's constantly acting to, to meet those needs, serving us. She's like, I got to get some, she's always getting someone a milk cup or someone a water cup or someone a coffee cup, right? The coffee is for me. We don't give it to our children. Oh, I can't even imagine what that would do. Huh? But we see time and time again, I see time and time again how my wife, and you've probably seen your mother or your wife or whatever, to serving and serving and sacrificing and sacrificing and somehow speaking graciously and lovingly through the entire process. That's what really blows me away almost the most is that I see time and again where our children will ask for the same thing over and over and over again. They're juice, 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 fruit snack, fruit snack, fruit snack, fruit snack. And eventually when I get those requests time and time and time again, you know, there's a part of me that's just wants to be like, okay, you know what? Uh, fruit snacks are gone. They're illegal now. The government outlawed. They're gone forever. But my wife is able to step into those times time and time and time again. She speaks lovingly, patiently, graciously, and she's denying herself over and over and over again. And I'll tell you, every time she does that, it's incredibly disruptive, right? Self-denial, sacrificing of your own desires for the sake of others, it is incredibly disruptive. And if we look back at our lives, we see this, right? It disrupts our own personal Lives. We've seen how self-denial creates significant disruption in our lives. We say, you know, I'm, I need to save money. Therefore, man, I'm going to have some more stress. Or I'm going to have to be tighter to this budget. Or I'm going to have to cut some corners. Right? Or maybe it's, okay, I'm going to need to work more. And so I'm going to rest less. I'm going to feel less, you know, calm at the end of the day because I'm, I'm putting in more hours, more effort. Maybe you say, I'm going to get married. I'm going to, you know, join with this other person for the rest of our lives. Okay, well, now I need to learn how to fold Everything, apparently. I was, towels need to be, go threefold. Okay, all right. You know, but there's, there's this process of essentially sacrificing things that we have. And when that self-denial comes into place, it's disruptive. It's disruptive for us, but it's also disruptive for other people in an incredibly positive way, right? Because if I'm saving money, suddenly I have an opportunity to give to someone else in need. Maybe there's someone locally, a family member or a friend, someone in the church body who's in significant financial need and I can give to them. They, they want to go overseas on a mission trip. I can support them because of the denial that, that my self-denial then and brings this wonderful disruption to their life, right? The, the work I put in, it's, it's disruptive for me and my family, but, but man, I'm setting up some team members. I'm setting up some coworkers to, to, to grow and, and flourish. Man, maybe I'm, I'm stepping into this marriage that's going to take some sacrifice on my part, but it allows me to then support this other person on this foundation of unconditional love that, that's just spectacular. Right, So self-denial, yeah, it's disruptive for us, but it's so wonderfully disruptive for others. Where it creates many times a, a kind of immediate personal loss. And it, it results time after time in this incredible future gain for others and, and even sometimes for ourselves. 
And so when we look at the life of this guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7, what we're going to see is the first follower of Christ who actually followed Jesus all the way to the grave. And we're going to see in his life, we're going to see in his actions, that he essentially was used so powerfully by God because he was willing to deny himself in three key ways. He was a spirit-filled person. He was serving people and he was speaking truth. In other words, he gave of himself. He gave to the Lord his thoughts, his actions, and his words. And when he did this, when he denied himself in these ways, what happens is God uses him powerfully to disrupt and impact the world around him. All right, so if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, we're going to see how Stephen was a person who was filled with the Spirit, And essentially just gave control of his life to the Lord. Acts chapter 6 verse 1 tells us this. That in those days when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Right, so the community, the church community was growing and there were needs that were presented. Right? As any community grows, the needs and problems also increase. Right? And what was happening here was that there were two kind of groups of people. There was this cultural divide. There were Jewish believers who uh, had, were, we call the Hellenists, who essentially had adopted Greek thought, speech, and, and practice. And there were other Jews who had kind of held to the historical kind of fundamental ways, the traditional ways of speaking Hebrew, of, of observing certain uh, festivals and, and, and things like that. And so there was a cultural divide between these people. And because of this division, what was happening was there was a kind of competitiveness and there was a, a sense of, well, these, this one group, right? So the Hebraic Jews, they are actually getting their needs, their needs met before the rest of us. They're taking priority. They're this kind of higher level in the community, the haves and the have-nots. And so the Greek-speaking Jews, they took issue with this, right? They make a complaint. They're saying, hey, this isn't fair. This isn't good. This isn't just. Our widows, our, our people in greatest need, they're not being served the way that they should be. And so the 12 called the whole group together this is verse 2. The whole group of the disciples together. And they said, it's not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. So the upper leadership, so in this case, the 12, the apostles of Christ, the, the, the men who had been with him from the beginning of his ministry, they'd kind of a, they had kind of risen to this kind of upper leadership level and, and oversight of the church community. And they're saying, yeah, this is, this is bad. Like, this isn't good. Right? This is wrong. This is a legitimate complaint. But they're kind of, their hands are tied because they're saying, but, but here's the thing. We have all these other responsibilities. We need to be committed to the word. We need to be committed to sharing, speaking truth, to, to sharing the good news about what Jesus Christ has done. They said, we don't have the capacity to wait on these tables, right? So what they're going to have to do in the next verse is they're going to have to start looking for more workers, right? As the needs increased, that ministry had to be pushed out and workers need to be raised up. Leaders need to be raised up. It's just, it's what happens in any organization. It's what happens in any community. Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, he does not mow the lawn uh, here at Grace. He, I mean, he might every once in a while because he's a servant. Uh, but generally speaking, he doesn't put that on his list of responsibilities because that's one of those things that we've distributed to other people. That's one of those things that's, that's work that's been pushed out. It's been kind of spread out among the body. And so what we're seeing here is this need uh, for 
more workers. So the apostles say, okay, we're going to need to carefully select from among you, this is verse 3, brothers, uh, seven men who are well attest, who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. They're saying, yeah, this is a legitimate need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They're not saying that one need is greater than the other. They're just saying, hey, our best efforts, our best energy is going to be spent on the word, on on prayer. And so we're going to need other people to step up. We're going to need specific people who are, in fact, of good report, well attested. Literally here in the Greek, it's this term, martureo. And it's essentially, it comes from, kind of the root is what we have kind of co-opted as martyr, right? It's this idea, it's this, this term that means that someone is a good witness. They have a good standing. They're saying we need those types of people. We need people who can step up, who have a good reputation. And interestingly enough, right, one of the first people named, actually the first person named, uh, after the entire group is pleased with it, they, choo- they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. Full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they say, yeah, you want someone of really good standing? You want someone who is a martyr, a good witness? We're going to call on Stephen. And, I mean, spoiler alert, Stephen's going to die, right? And this is, uh, in fact, he is what we would call the first, he's one of the first deacons, and he's also the first martyr. Because when we use the term martyr now, generally speaking, we're talking about someone who gives their life, who dies for their faith, for what they believe in. So little did they know when they said, man, this, this Stephen guy, he's a great witness. Right? He's of good standing. He's well attested. He's going to actually take that and run with it. And it's actually going to bring about his death. He's going to give everything for his witness of Christ. And what's so incredible about Stephen is that, you know, they're able to call him out. And it's not, we don't see this as this like long, lengthy, difficult process. When in scripture, it's it's quick, man. They named Stephen, they named some other people as well. Uh, But right here, we see that he was a man that they could immediately think of. They said, yeah, this is someone with clear motivation, consistent message. I think that's what we're seeing played out in life. See, when he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of wisdom. He's a person who, when they think of, they're like, oh yeah, I know what he's about. I know what he's doing. I know his passions. I know his practice. And, and I think one of the questions we should ask ourselves, is if we want to be disciples of Christ, if we want to be people who are denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following after Jesus, we would, should aspire to be this type of person, someone who has clear motivation, someone who has a clear message. And so if you were to really just sit down, this is, a, I think, a helpful practice. You, that every once in a while, it's, just, it's really interesting to sit down, to pull out a piece of paper and say, okay, answer two questions for yourself. The first being, okay, what am I passionate about? If I was going to write one to five things down, what would I write? What am I just really on fire about right now? What, what just gets me going? And then the second question is, okay, well, if I could remove every responsibility that I have right now, Right? If, if everything was just miraculously taken care of, the schoolwork's going to get done, the job's going to be accomplished, right? my family's going to be cared for, my children will somehow be bathed and clothed without me. If all of those things are just taken care of, what would I do with my time? If I remove those responsibilities, what would I do? I think it's helpful every once in a while to just sort of take this kind of self-assessment, but then I think more interestingly is you then compare that with someone you're close with. You say, hey, 
co, you know, friend or family member, maybe spouse. You ask them, you say, hey, if you were going to answer these questions about me, what would you say? What's your read? And it's fascinating. Some of the best kind of developmental tools that I've walked through, that I've used in my professional development is peer evaluation. Where it's not just self-evaluate. It's not just you saying like, oh, well, this is how I act or this is how I behave or this is the way I think. You find out, you know, you get this 360 profile of how other people perceive you. And man, it's, it's very enlightening. It wasn't just that Stephen would identify himself as, yeah, oh, no, I, I, I speak, you know, consistently or, you know, I have a very clear motivation. People know what I'm about. It was actually true. And so when we see this self-denial taking place, man, it's something that's so powerful because it's, it's evident to the people around them. And yet I think I drift towards, we drift towards uh, inconsistency, right? We will drift towards uh, confusion where we're just, we're kind of mixed up. We go one way and then we go the other way. Again, I see this with my children all the time. My, my wonderful three-month-old son, uh, he, every time he goes to sleep, man, he, they, we, we swaddle him up. We're, you know, 2019 parents and we love the swaddle. And so he's all wrapped up like a burrito and he will, you know, over the course of an evening, like work his fist up in front of his face. And he does this and he hates it. Every time he gets that arm all the way out, he then changes his mind. He's like, nope, this is wrong. And he'll scream and he'll yell at us. Or there's many times where he like, he wants his passing. And he's like, he's screaming because he wants to be pacified. And so we give him his passing. And then like five minutes later, he's like, you know what? I don't want the passing. Now it's in my face and I'm going to scream more. And he's super upset because he's inconsistent. He's confusing. I do not understand his motivation or his message. It's all over the place. It's true of my other children, my four-year-old daughter, just yesterday, we were driving away from a thing and she was talking to me about how America, she desperately, desperately needed an American girl doll because one of her cousins had one. And she's like, they come with pets. They have all these things. It's amazing. And I'm like, I know, I get it. Right? Like I, I, they are. And she was, she was in tears. She was weeping because she was trying to impart to me the truth that she absolutely needed to go to the store and buy one today. I was like, Charlotte, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not what the Lord has for us. Like, that's not what's going to take place. It's just not. They're very expensive. I was like, you know, I tried to give her some path. I was like, you can save your money. You can, you know, for your birthday or Christmas, you can ask for this as a gift. But, but darling, we're not just going to go buy an American girl doll. They're like $3,000. Like, I don't, I can't do that. And she was so, so upset, so upset yesterday, just last night. And so this morning, I kind of started, I probed it because I knew what was going to happen. And so I started to ask her some questions this morning over breakfast. I was like, hey, you know, thinking about any, like anything, anything on your mind, thinking about dolls or anything. And she's like, no. I'm like, "Ah, you inconsistent child, right? Like she had completely forgotten about this thing. That seemed to just be the only thing in her life. It was gone. It was forgotten in yesterday. And, and we are like this, even though, you know, we do it as children, but the reality is we, we stay like this as adults and we just, we filter it a little bit better sometimes, but we will find ourselves on running down some track or passionate about this hobby or that pursuit or this conversation topic. I mean, then we look, you know, we get two weeks down the road and it's, it's gone. We're over it. We're going in a new direction. We're chasing after some other fulfillment. We're chasing after some other satisfaction. And it's inconsistent. It, it leads to confusion. 
And so that's why Stephen was intentional and essentially being filled with the Spirit. He's described as full of the Spirit because what he was doing, this is an idea of being controlled. When we see this filling of the Spirit in our New Testament, what we see time and again is it being described as you're, you're giving control to the Lord. You're allowing the indwelling Spirit to not just be with you, but to actually guide you and direct you. He's our counselor. He's our tutor. He's our guide. And so Stephen knows, hey, on my own, I'm going to be inconsistent. So I'm going to have to rely on the power of the Spirit, of God's Holy Spirit, to, to direct my path, to keep me on the right track. Right? So he was denying himself and the, the flashes of inspiration or, or passion or things, the, the stuff that just doesn't really lead anywhere. He says, I'm, I'm going to put those things aside. I'm going to try to focus on what God wants for me. And, and he's going to be consistent. The Lord isn't swayed. Like we are. So he denied himself in being filled with the Spirit. And, and we can do this, I think, through prayer, right? Through time in the Word. We, we open up. We make ourselves available. We say, God, you know, maybe it's part of even just our morning routine. We can say, Lord, I want you to guide my steps today. God, I want you to be in control of my thoughts, of my actions, of my words. Do we pray that? When, before we walk into a meeting, before we have a, a hard conversation, are we saying, God, I, I want you to... To really guide this time. Right? He's overseeing it regardless. But are we opening ourselves up to his direction? Stephen was filled with the spirit in this way. He, and then that played itself out in his life. In his serving of other people. Right? Remember, the reason he was called up was because of verse 2. That there was a need for people to wait on tables. Literally in the Greek, to serve tables. To serve people. To, to meet them at their most fundamental need of food. Right? They need sustenance. And so, Stephen was doing this. He was distributing food to people who needed it. Who, who couldn't get it on their own. But then what's even more incredible is that... Uh, just a few verses later, when we see in verse 8, as he's you know, functioning in this role as a deacon, we see that he was full of grace and power, and he was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And man, what a cool pairing of jobs, right? He's waiting on table, he's serving food, and he's also performing great wonders and miraculous signs. Saying, oh, you need, you need uh, chicken wings? Okay, great. Actually, check your coat pocket. <gasps> what? Right, that's, oh. you know, I don't, that probably isn't exactly how it worked, but we don't know. Scripture is silent on this issue. Uh, but he was in some way pairing, I think, the, the reality of our ministry, the reality of our serving of people, our serving to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's both mundane and it's miraculous at the exact same time. This is the reality of, of the ministry that God calls us to. It's mundane and it's miraculous. It's, it's common and yet it's, it's incredibly catalytic. It, it's unbelievable the impact that God can have through what we perceive as just the most inconsequential moments. You know, this is, this is a work that I mean, we're, we're called to. It's a work that a lot of people in our midst even are, are functioning in, right? We have a number of, of wonderful uh, men who give their time as, as deacons. They're preparing our picnic for next week. They're, they're, they're serving in what we would say is, man, a lot of times it's, it's very, it seems to be common or a mundane task. And yet God uses it to bring about miraculous change in the lives of other people. We, we serve our, our widows and widowers. We have an owls ministry that I think is just, it has incredible impact. It, it doesn't look flashy. You know, if, if, if you know someone who's 
been through the ministry or if you are, are interested in it, man, it's, it's very common. And just like you get together, uh, you have time in the word, you have time over a meal. Like it's, it's nothing like that would at first glance seem just wild, but yet God uses it in miraculous ways to, to really grab a hold of people's hearts and minds in a, in a new way. Things that we see as mundane, God actually uses in, for miraculous results. Right? When I uh, started uh, on staff at Grace Bible Church, I was still in college. I came on as a part-time junior high coordinator. And I worked here at Anderson uh, for a couple years. And, and I was at a point in my life, uh, graduating from college, where I wasn't sure what was next. My wife and I, uh, we got married right after college. And, and we had kind of plans to go out and, and do these different things. I, was gonna, I wanted to go to seminary. Um, she was going to go through other like upper-level schooling and things like this. And, and we in the middle of this kind of transitional or kind of wondering time, I, I set up my first sit down meeting uh, with our senior pastor, Brian Fisher. Uh, I'd been on staff for a little bit, but I hadn't ever just like had a one-on-one conversation with him. And so I thought, you know, Hey, I'll just meet with them before I leave. Right. I want to like maybe take advantage of this leader and, and learn from him and maybe grow from what he input he has. And so I'll always remember, man, the, the greatest impact that came from the meeting that I had with him uh, was not, in fact, something that I wrote down. Right. And I, I have the notes. I found them in my office from September 2010. Uh, and. You know, I, it's, it's good stuff, right? Like, I, you know, it's, we talked about levels of authority. We talked about personal leadership and team leadership. Uh, you know, how to kind of structure your schedule in an effective way. It's good, it's good information, absolutely. Uh, but the greatest impact that came from this meeting uh, was not, in fact, one of these things that I wrote down. Instead, the greatest impact, the thing that stuck with me, what I can remember vividly to this day, nine years later, was we sat down in the cry room. Because okay, you never know what's going to happen when you meet with Brian Fisher. And so we went to the cry room just in case. And I'll remember as I began to ask him these questions that I had kind of prepared. That in the middle of our conversation, uh, he just, he, he pulled his leg up into the chair with him. And he, and he kind of leaned forward. And his posture to me communicated that he was passionate and invested in what we were talking about, but it also showed me just his investment, not only in what we were discussing, but his investment in me as an individual. And man, that was a pivotal moment for me that I remember right there thinking, gosh, and this, this is a place I want to be. This is a leader that I want to follow. And in that meeting, you know, that's, that's something that for, for him was so easily forgettably common, right? Just sitting down with a young guy to like talk about leadership skill. I mean, come on. Like that's, that's, that's so, so mundane. And yet what he probably perceived as common, I haven't actually asked him. I need to ask him this week if he remembers. I'm sure he won't, but maybe he will. I don't know. We'll see. For him, what was so common for me was absolutely catalytic. And, and I realized in that moment, I was like, man, this, this is a place that I want to be. And nine years later, I'm still here. For better or worse, I'm still here. Uh, and a big piece of it was that meeting. And, you know, we're not always going to know the full effects. We're not always going to know the eternal impact, the life change that God can bring about through our mundane tasks through our common conversations. 
And it's easy for us. I mean, it's easy for me to just focus on the frustrations of the day-to-day grind. And I forget the fruit that God can bring from what I perceive as just hard soil. I mean, I, I get tired of telling my kids the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. We get tired of struggling with the same sin, the same addiction, the same uh, temptation. We get tired of arguing with the same coworker about the same issues time and time again. And yet what's incredible is we don't know. We don't know what God can actually bring about. We don't know what, he, what fruit he can produce from us just being willing to, to be gracious one more time. From us offering to forgive someone quickly, without need for repayment, because we're forgiving just as we've been forgiven. We don't know the impact that us just offering to pray for a friend, offering to pray for a family, or what that can actually accomplish through the Lord's work. I mean, just the smallest actions, the smallest words, we can maybe even look back on our lives and we have these pivotal moments that other people have completely forgotten. And yet they were used by the Lord to bring about incredible life change, to change our affections, to grab our attention. So do we look at every day, do we look at these opportunities as just something to get through? Or do we see it as an opportunity to create eternal shift in someone's trajectory? God is saying, I want to use you. Be filled with my spirit. Go out and serve these people. And as you walk forward in the, on this path that I've laid out, I want you to be a person who is speaking truth to yourself and to others. This is what we see Stephen accomplish. He is essentially performing these great signs, performing these wonders. And some men, right, so the religious leaders of that time, they stood up and they argued with Stephen. And yet they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. There's pushback. As the Christian community is growing, there's people that are concerned about it. They're like, this is... This is too disruptive. And so they push back and they try to argue against Stephen, but they're not able to resist him. In other words, what he's saying is too compelling. It's too clear. It's too consistent. They can't find any legitimate fault with him or his message. And so if they want to take him down, what they decide is, well, okay, we're just going to have to lie about it, right? So they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. This would give them just cause in their law to bring him before a council who could decide basically whether he lives or dies. Because if he is found guilty of blasphemy, they have in their law the, the right to stone him to death. So they... Get these people to to lay false witness, right? False claims against this good witness of good report. And what's incredible is that Stephen in this moment, right? In this incredibly just unjust moment. It's a horrific situation. What he does is he responds to these accusations with the most incredible summary and celebration of what God had accomplished in the nation of Israel. And through this kind of summary and celebration of what God had done, what he does is he actually delivers, just off the cuff, one of the greatest sermons ever recorded related to the purpose of our lives, related to the story that God has written for us. And it's so good, in fact, that, that I don't even want to summarize it. And instead, what, how we're going to wrap up our time this morning is I just want to read to you his sermon. Uh, and so I would encourage you that during this time, uh, it's... Most of chapter 7 is what I'm going to be reading, um, but I'm going to be using, uh, intentionally kind of shifting to a, an easier kind of uh, to understand, easier to read translation. 
Because I would encourage you to simply listen. Rather than following along in your Bible, I I would encourage you to just listen as a member of Stephen's audience. To hear this story that he tells, to hear the, the, the historical summary he provides, the sermon he delivers that essentially presents this incredible theme of selection and redemption and rejection. So this is Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our, girl, our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran until his father died. And then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. But God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants. Even though he had no children at that time, God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But God said, I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. So God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. And these patriarchs, they were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and he rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave Joseph favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so that Pharaoh appointed him him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and upon Canaan, and there was great misery. And our ancestors ran out of food. But Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt. So he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. And the second time they went there, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 people in all. So Jacob went to Egypt and he died there, as did our ancestors. And their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamer's sons in Shechem. And as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And this king exploited our people and oppressed them. And he forced parents to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. And at that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. And his parents cared for him at home for three months. And when they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. And Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he was powerful in both speech and action. And one day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. And he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. And Moses assumed that his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day he visited them again and he saw two men of Israel fighting and he tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you're brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? 
And when Moses heard that, he fled the country, and he lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian, and there his two sons were born. But 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, saying, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. But the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. So now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And yet through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and their savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. And yet our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him. They wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what's become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it, and they celebrated over this thing that they had made. And then God turned away from them, and he abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. For in the book of the prophets, it's written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness? No. You carried your pagan gods the shrine of Molech, the star of your god Refin, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. So our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan that God had shown to Moses. And years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into this new territory and stayed there until the time of King David. And David found favor with God, and he asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Solomon, but it, or for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who actually built it. However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. For as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? So you stubborn people. You're heathen at heart. You're deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. And so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed, whom you murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Stephen lays out for these persecutors, he lays out for these leaders the the truth of where they came from, the truth of what they had done. It says, you have essentially denied the Savior that God has sent to rescue you. You've denied the path of redemption that he's provided. You've rejected what God has put in front of you as a path to salvation. It says, you've chosen to follow your own desires 
And instead of denying yourself, you've denied your Savior. And so when the people heard this, they became furious and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this point, the religious leaders, they stone Stephen to death. And he asked the Lord to to not hold their sins against them. He asked Jesus to receive his spirit. And Stephen dies. And he lives out this message that he was preaching. He lives out the, the better way of rather than rejecting the Savior, rejecting the God who made him and loves him. Instead, Stephen says, man, I, I see the fact that God has chosen us, that he has sent to us his son, Jesus Christ, as a, as a redemptive agent, right? Jesus Christ, who denied himself in order to bring deliverance for all people who call on him or for anyone who trusts in his name. There's no more condemnation. There's no more uh, death for the, death is not the end. You have a life guaranteed, a relationship guaranteed with the God of the universe for all of time, for all of eternity. Stephen says, I I see this and I'm going to receive it rather than reject it. And what's so beautiful about his death is that he sees Jesus Christ standing at the throne, uh, uh, next to the throne of God. And every scholar who reads this, every biblical scholar, is just floored by the fact that, man, every time Jesus is described in our literature, all this language and these visions that people have of the throne room of God, Jesus is always seated at the right hand of God. And yet in this moment, he's standing. And what that signifies is he is standing to receive his son, his beloved servant, who's given everything for his sake. I mean, that's the life that I want to live, right? That's the satisfaction that I want to attain. Jesus tells us if we're seeking to gain our lives in this world, we're just going to lose it, right? The, the, the things that this world offers, it's not enough. It won't satisfy, it won't deliver. He says, instead, if you want to be my disciple, you should deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, Lose your life here so that you might gain it in eternity. That's what Stephen lived out. And that's the opportunity that we've been given. See, what's beautiful is that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you need to make sure you've got seven solid years of past performance, right? Before I'm, you know, you're allowed to really follow after me. You need to deny it. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, this is the day. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. So even though some of us are maybe 30 years into this journey of following after Jesus Christ, and some of us might be three days in, What's beautiful is that we all have a new opportunity to deny ourselves, right? To put the Lord first and foremost. We, we have the opportunity to create space for the Spirit to, indwell, to fill us and move through us. We have the opportunity to, to serve other people. We have the opportunity to speak this kind of truth to ourselves and to others. We speak God's truth of his scripture to ourselves. That's why we're called to memorize it, to, to learn it, to guard it in our hearts and our minds. We're called to share the, our testimony, the, the witness of what Christ has done with the people around us. And if we deny ourselves in these ways, what, what we see in Scripture, what we see promised is true deliverance. And what would happen if we lived in this way? What would happen? What kind of disruption could we cause in our broader community, in our broader culture, in our broader nation and world? if we really lived lives that were sold out, that were less about us 
and more about him and more about others. So let's go before the Lord now and ask him to show us and what's our next step? What's our opportunity this week? Lord, we, we thank you that you have given us, Lord, a high calling to, to trust you with our day-to-day. God, to, to choose this new path, this new opportunity. Lord, we're no longer bound by our old self, but instead we have this new, this new uh, identity that we can adopt, this new identity that we can live in. Lord, as Paul would say in Romans, we, we don't have to live under the legacy of Adam anymore. We can now live under the legacy of Christ. So God, we ask that you would empower us to make that choice, that Lord, your spirit would be at work within us, both to will and to work for your glory. So if you would just take a moment right now and, and ask the Lord to maybe show you what's, what's next. Is there an opportunity that you've been given to, to really give a day, a moment, a conversation, a relationship, to really give it over to the Lord, to create space for the Spirit to move, to to put someone else's needs above your own, to, to share the truth of what Christ has done. Ask the Lord to just show you what is that opportunity right now. Well, Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, God, the reliability of your scripture. Lord, we ask that you would just continue to walk with us, Lord, even though we stumble, Lord, we know that you're strong, that you're always gracious, you're ready to forgive and empower us where we're weak. So, Lord, we just, we thank you for today, for these moments to hear from your word. We pray that it would move us forward in a new direction. We pray these things in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys. Uh, We'll see you in a week.